Leadership Next is powered by the folks at Deloitte, who, like me, are super focused on how CEOs can lead in the context of disruption and devolving societal expectations. Welcome to Leadership Next, the podcast about the changing rules of business leadership. I'm Alan Murray, here with my super amazing (laughs) co-host, Ellen McGirt. I love those intros, and I'm going to love this interview. And hello, everyone. Alan, our guest today is a woman I don't know very well, but I have been really anxious to get to know better. She's Indra Nooyi, the former CEO of PepsiCo. When she took that job in 2006, she became the first woman and first immigrant woman to run a Fortune 50 company. And I am not ashamed to confess to you today that I pestered her team relentlessly for an interview back in the day, stopping just shy of jumping out from behind the proverbial potted plant to get her attention. Did did you get it? No, no no. luck for this enterprising reporter, but I really tried and I had an amazing adventure getting to know PepsiCo as a result. We will hold her accountable for that. Well, well, (laughs) well, I had a little more luck, did get to know her pretty well and was really impressed And one of the things that we want to talk about, I mean, during her tenure, she was very early on in saying we needed to have more products at Pepsi that are nutritious, that are healthy, are good for your health. And she got some pushback from her shareholders on that. And we should talk about that. Yes, we absolutely should. And we would be remiss if we failed to mention that she has had an extraordinary family life and family journey. She has two daughters she loves very much. Uh, Her new memoir, My Life in Full, is really focused on the challenges that come with growing both a career and a family. And she's just beautifully articulate on the issues. And she has a lot to say about how companies should be helping. I've read my life in full. I I I liked it a lot, but I have to say, having read dozens and dozens of CEO memoirs, it was distinct from all the others for exactly the reason you said. She really takes in a very candid and frontal way. She takes on the challenges of being a mother and being a CEO and executive at the same time. And so a lot for us to talk about today. Uh, Indra, welcome to Leadership Next. Great to be here, Alan and Ellen. Great to talk to the two of you. Thank you for inviting me onto your podcast. Ellen, where should we start? I think we should start where she started. You begin the book with an incredible anecdote where you explain what it was like to be one of a small group of global CEOs meeting the U.S. president, meeting global leaders, and you're explaining what it was like to have arrived at this elite level have, with incredible hard work and an incredible partner. We're going to talk about Raj too. And having nobody talk about the lives of women and families in these rooms. And it was clear that you were dedicating this book and incredibly personal stories to that big idea that everything would be better if we thought about women and families, not just the global economy. I think if you go back to the introduction, I talk about this duality that I grew up in two cultures, you know, the leaders of both countries claiming me to be one of their own, but my duality went beyond that growing up in two cultures issue. It was also about being a mom and an executive, trying to balance short-term and long-term in my business dealings, performance and purpose. There was duality all through my life and I tried to juggle this, not balance it, juggle it through my entire life. And the thing that surprised me while I was in my final years at PepsiCo and most certainly now post PepsiCo is all of the work about the future of work, the future of offices, everything talks about hybrid work, automation, Mm -hmm. 
remote work, talks about technology disruption. But the word family and helping young family builders and women balance their family and work, juggle all of it. And how is that going to come into the future of work discussion seems to be absent. And I say this because we need women in the workforce. Women are getting all the top degrees. They are wicked smart. They are graduating in larger numbers. They want economic freedom. And the country needs their talent. At the same time, women are also primary family builders. And so we want them to build families too, if they want to. We want to give them the opportunity to have families. But somehow, the fact that we need young women to do both somehow doesn't enter the equation at all. And we don't talk about what we need to do to make their life easier. And so this book is about that. And that's why I love the book so much. It really is pathbreaking. Indra, you tell me if you disagree with this, but you were a pioneer, right? You were part of a very small number of women running Fortune 500 companies. And in my experience, there was kind of a reluctance among those pioneers to talk about what it was like being a woman. Uh, because you wanted to be seen as a CEO. You didn't want to be seen as a female CEO. You didn't want to be put into a pigeonhole. And so we haven't talked about these issues. And I think it's very bold what you've done. And I hope it will spark a renewed conversation. I'm just curious about how you made that decision. You must have thought about it when you sat down to write the book. You see, once again, I approached this whole issue more as an economist than a feminist. Because I said, look, if you want to think of the resources of the country, which is all of the talented women out there, how do you deploy them to further the country, to grow the country, to grow the GDP of the country? And if you think that way, you want to make sure you grease the kids for women to come into the workforce and perform at their best. You want to make it possible for young family builders to have families and still engage in paid work. So if you approach this issue strictly from a country and its success and its future and its competitiveness perspective, which all of us are interested in, you would not just make it a feminist and a female issue. You'd say, God, this is a economist perspective. And these are critical subjects we need to talk about if we want to talk about the future of the country, the economic progress of the country, you know, the future of work. And somehow, I think we need to soften the discussions on future of work to include all this because mm. right now it's too hard on technology, disruption, hybrid workplaces. Yeah, but hybrid workplaces to enable what? Flexible work, working to enable what? I think we need to get more expansive and have a holistic conversation. And I think the time for that has come. I couldn't agree more. I do want to spend a little time on the book because I found it also so revelatory and so deeply personal. But for anybody who is listening out there who is concerned that this is not going to also be an MBA level exploration of modern business, you are mistaken. And I, I just want to make a quick recommendation for the second edition of this book, Indra. <laughs> I would love it if you would include in the next iteration some of the amazing presentations, decks, charts, and graphs that you have talked about as you described these pivotal points in your career. They're incredible. I want to start with the analysis behind one of your first jobs with J&J, very surprising, as you were pretty much single-handedly introducing period products into the Indian marketplace. And you took tremendous risks with the conversation around 
girls and women and what they needed to succeed. Could you tell us that context of that story, please? So I was recruited to be the product manager to launch stay-free maxi pads in India. It was a beltless napkin at a time that India had carefree, which was a belted napkin and not much else. And here we were launching stay-free belted napkins. This was way back in the 70s. You should understand the time was very different. And in, in India, branded personal products were really not sold in significant quantities. People couldn't afford to buy them. And uh, shopkeepers were embarrassed to sell them because subjects like this were never talked about in public. Uh, women's periods were considered taboo subjects that you just keep within the confines of the home. So now I'm recruited as a product manager and I really have to adapt the global product for India. This is a global product that is personal. So I have to make sure that the structure of the product is right for the Indian market, the humidity conditions don't mess up the product. And based on the undergarments that Indian women wore, I wanted to make sure the product would sit properly on the mm-hmm. undergarments that they wore, which were not the same as the Western undergarments. So I would have women use the pad and leave it in the bathroom for me to see so that I could understand whether the product crumpled, whether the product doubled over. It was a very personal thing. But I tell you what was amazing for me in that experience. One part of me felt an incredible purpose for working on a product that gave women more freedom. That felt great because I was a user myself. But the more amazing thing was everybody around me were men. All the executives were men. And they all took part in the discussion without flinching, without feeling embarrassed. They too felt they were all on a common purpose, which was to provide more freedom, provide more, uh, you know, uh, just liberation for women. They took upon it as a purpose. And I think that, you know, really made me feel wonderful about what we were working on and what it meant for young women. I want to bring you to a more recent experience that you also talk about in the book. Relatively early in your days as CEO of Pepsi, you made a decision that the company had to do more than provide high sugar drinks and Doritos. You needed to have products that were more healthy for people and encourage people in that direction. And you got pushback both inside the company and outside. And I wonder if you could talk about how you made that decision and how you dealt with the pushback. Well, you know, PepsiCo has a fantastic portfolio of great tasting products. The Pepsis, the Mountain Dews, the Lay's, Doritos. I love every one of those products. But as I looked at the population, I saw some trends, which, you know, I saw accelerating, which was a trend towards consuming healthier products, not necessarily purely nutritious products, but healthier products versus, you know, what people were consuming in the past. So I looked at this as a great opportunity to future-proof the company. And what, what did I want to do? Something very simple. I said, look, our products, many of them are fun for you, great treat-like products. What if we were to offer zero-calorie versions of these products? They would be better for you. So dial up all the zero-calorie options and beverages. But in snacks, you can't really do zero-calorie because snacks by themselves are caloric. So reduce the salt and fat levels in those products. And then dial up the products with nutrition content like sabra hummus, naked juice. You know, dial those up. So it was a very nuanced strategy of fun for you, better for you, and good for you. The strategy was keep selling fun for you, but reduce the salt, fat, and sugar in the fun for you. Dial up the better for you and really dial up the good for you. There was only one problem. When you take products that taste so great and optimized over the years, and you try to take down the sugar or salt or fat, 
you want to make sure consumers don't say, God, it tastes so different, I don't want the product. So it required R&D capability, very careful formulation. So I embarked on making the investments to really tinker with these core products. And we were successful. We reduced the salt and fat in our products substantially, still tasted great. And in core blue can Pepsi, we reduced the sugar levels and dialed up the zero calories. But Indra, I know in those early days, you got pushback from investors who said, don't make me healthy, make me money. And I suspect you got, and I think you mentioned, you got some pushback inside the company as well. Yeah, you know, that's normal for transformations in retrospect. In those days, I was, uh, you know, miffed that people didn't see the strategy because many of them, many of those very investors who questioned my strategy had changed their eating and drinking habits. If you've changed your eating and drinking habits and you confess that you've changed it, why do you think we shouldn't? Because at the end of the day, you are a consumer. We are all consumers. And we should reflect how the marketplace is changing. You know, in retrospect, many of them came and congratulated me for the changes. But to me, any CEO should be courageous to make the changes when it needs to be made, not when it's too late. And so I think my goal was to future-proof PepsiCo and make sure that it remained successful over the years. It meant making some timely investments so that we could have a timeless company. And, you know, it had to be done. Speaking of investments, I had a fascinating conversation shortly after you became CEO, I want to say around 2007, 2008, at a symposium that was held at Columbia and run by Jeffrey Sachs, the economist. And I'm sorry, I can't remember this gentleman's name, but I he was a water engineer. He was based in India. And part of his presentation was describing the water, in particular, sustainability issues of sourcing in India and the transformation it would happen across the world if you could learn to source more sustainably. And what was even more incredible is that there was a, his counterpart at Coca-Cola was also there. And there was tremendous synergy and, and conversation, the kinds of collaboration that you wouldn't see on the store shelves thinking about the planet. Could you talk a little bit about the sustainability part of making better consumer choices? So we felt very strong and I felt very strongly that we had to reduce the water usage in our products because I grew up in a water distressed area. And I also yes. felt that all the plastic litter we used to see around towns and ocean fronts, whether it was ours or somebody else's, the fact of the matter is, as consumer products companies selling packaged goods in plastic bottles, it behooved us to reduce our plastic, recycle it, and you know create a closed-loop system. Uh, and of course, it was a whole issue of reducing our carbon footprint because we had so many trucks on the road we used a lot of fossil fuels in our plants. You know, we used a lot of renewable fuels before I left. We converted many of our plants to solar energy, even sold excess power back to the grid. Uh, we set up a lot of closed loop systems for plastic recycling. And we, somewhere between 15 and 25% of our bottles started to have recycled plastic. But perhaps the most progress we made was in water use. Because in our mm. beverage plants, for example, we used over two liters of water to make a liter of Pepsi. Now, in places where there's plentiful water supplies, it's not an issue. But when there's water-distressed areas, it's difficult to justify using so much water to make a soft drink when the town has no water to eat or drink. So we had right. to go through all kinds of technological changes, how to wash bottles with much lower water, how to rinse them without water through lights. How do you use the water that comes out of the effluent stream, clean it and put it back into washing the bottles? So there was a lot of technology and investments that had to be made, 
But what that allowed us to do is to continue to operate in towns that were water distressed because not only did we make our plants super water efficient, we taught the town how to be more water efficient. We taught them how to do rainwater harvesting. We taught them how to plow their paddy fields differently. So we were welcomed into towns as opposed to losing a license to operate in that society. But the biggest feather in our cap, Ellen, we got the Stockholm Water Prize, which was like the Nobel Prize for water conservation. So the team that worked on water did just spectacular things. And I think I look back at our environmental initiatives and say, thank God for that, because we have water shortages in so many parts of the world where we operate plants. I'm here with Joe Yukazoglu, who is CEO of Deloitte U.S. and had the good sense to sponsor this podcast. Joe, thanks for being with us and thanks for your support of our second season. Thanks, Alan. Pleasure to be here. Joe, we talked about technology adoption accelerating in 2020, but at the same time, it also seemed last year like there was an increased focus on people, on human capital. Can we hope for a future where we have both more technology and more humanity all at the same time? Well, Alan, I'm particularly energized leading a a large professional services firm where people are at the core. This is all about pairing great people with innovative technologies. It's not about replacing one with the other. It's allowing people to free up more of their time to do what humans do best. The technology is an enabler for great people to use their creativity, their complex judgment and decision-making skills. But at the same time, I think we have to recognize that getting this right definitely requires a new kind of corporate leadership. I would say out with the autocratic, all-knowing CEO sitting in the corner office and in with Those who bring vulnerability, empathy, humility, those are such critical attributes to unlocking the creative talents of the workforce in such a dynamic economy. Yeah, it is very different when you're trying to get a group of creative people to solve a problem than when you're simply giving orders and telling them what to do. It requires a brand of leadership that places a premium on instilling values, instilling principles, and empowering people to be able to make those judgments on the front line instead of waiting for some checklist or waiting for some prescriptive order from corporate that spells out exactly how each of those decisions need to be made. Joe, thank you. Indra, I want to go back to the family issues, which are such a core part of your book. What do we need to do to begin to address those issues, to make it possible for there to be more internuyis, more women who can have successful careers in business and also successful families? I think we should talk about women and giving them the chance to engage in paid work without going through incredible stress, but not just at the white collar level, Alan, we ought to talk about it through all of the hourly workers, the teachers, the nurses, the caregivers. I mean, we've got over 2 million uh, women who've left the workforce because they just don't have the appropriate support system. It's moving in the wrong direction. It is. Because caregivers have been hit by COVID. That's correct. I think there are three things we have to think about. Some of it have been helped by COVID, but we have to advance it further. First, paid leave. I think paid leave is critically important. And we have to think through How we make it happen, who's going to pay for it? I'm just going to propose the solutions. Somebody else needs to score it and figure out how to make it work. So think of it as a trifecta. Paid leave, 
The second part is flexibility and predictability of work hours. You know, for people in white collar jobs, can you have flexibility? So at some point you can work remotely, other parts you can come into work, but you know, within a family, you work out who's going to work remotely, who's going to work from the office. So flexibility. And for hourly workers, give them a predictable schedule. So two weeks out, they can plan their care responsibilities because the software is available today. So that's the second part of the trifecta. And now with technology having advanced as much as it did thanks to COVID, we can make remote working possible in a hybrid way, you know, some days off, some days on. And the third part, of course, is the care infrastructure. You know, just mm-hmm. as we've built a wonderful schooling system for kids over five, we've now got to turn our attention to thinking about children from the ages of three months to five years to see what kind of a support structure can we build for child and toddler care and then for preschool so that the kids that come into school are already well-equipped to come into the school system and young family builders can actually go back to work because many of them hold critical jobs critical jobs in frontline, caregiving, nursing, teachers, grocery store workers, I think we have to really make it possible for them. And then, of course, as you get to the white-collar jobs and the entry-level jobs, we've got to carry this further. But once you reach the middle management level, you can afford to build your own care structure. But I think Mm. we have to build the pipelines. We've got to make it easier for our frontline workers to actually engage in Paid work, because they need that paid work more than anybody else. They are many times single parents. And I think we really have to lean in to provide a support structure for all of them. There are a number of proposals buried in the infrastructure bill, for example, and, and some on the local level, where government would play a role in funding and supporting this kind of thing. But it just seems that the opportunity for any kind of agreement politically or any kind of real public-private partnership on this just seems like a distant dream. Is there anything that you've been thinking about that we can be pushing for now, lobbying for, and not making these kinds of care infrastructures specific to individual companies? I think there are two things that we can do. One is we've got to sort of inject a lot more humanity into the future of work conversations. We've just got to do it. Uh, Wherever there are big future of work discussions, We've got to show up and talk about expanding the conversations to include families, young family builders, women, into this whole future of work, and how we've got to enable all of it, uh, enable everybody to contribute as we think about the future of work and working. But I think there's another very important thing we ought to do. You know, this is a constructive conversation we need to have about care and hybrid working. And so many people have worked on this issue. We read all the reports and the books. They've researched it. They've studied it. They've scored it. Lots of experts. I think we should bring them together in a care convention. You know, the 50 or 100 people, the critical people who worked on the care issue and talk about what's a sensible way to move forward. You know, what's the partnership between corporations, communities, families, governments, you know, state governments, federal governments. I think there's a way to bring the voices together in a sensible uh, care convention that leads to pragmatic action based on all the work that's been done already. But let's not just have hundreds of reports. Let's come together and somehow knit it all together into a thoughtful policy paper that can be taken to the right people, you know, the business roundtable, 
the government, whoever, right. to say, how do we move this agenda forward linked to the future of work? Can we you, can I, do that. Alan, you, we can do that. Yeah, do and, that. and you can do it too, Indra. I mean, you have the credibility and the convening ability. You know, if we can work with you to help make that happen, let us know. But, but we, we are going to call for a care convention. Good. and I've already talked to a lot of people. They're all dying to come to it. They're all good. dying to contribute and make a difference. So we are going to do it. Good. I figured you could do that, uh, and, and you will. And <laughs> let us know what we can do to help. I, I want to ask you. I want to ask you before we leave. You have been a great friend to the Fortune Most Powerful Women franchise, and you've also been a, a great friend to the Next Generation franchise. Shared your advice. I remember particularly moving comments you made in Toronto shortly after stepping down as CEO. I wonder if you could share that with our listeners. I mean, tell us what your advice is to women trying to follow your path. How do we have a great career in business and potentially make it to the very top? The, the thought I would leave with everybody is that today, it's different times. It's a, it's a decade for women. We need your capability. We need your talents in the workplace. And all workplaces are better if they're diverse and include everybody's voices. Uh, and it includes them equally. Don't just have them in the room, but not listen to them. So I think workplaces are different. Companies perform better. They make better decisions. Innovation is better if we have all of the voices in the room. So I think the time has come for everybody to be an equal player in uh, seats of power. So I feel optimistic about people coming to that recognition because now we are moving more and more to a knowledge-based economy where we need all the talent to be deployed in the success of companies and countries. So that's one part. The second part I say is that our pipeline to the top is not yet intact. Many parts of it are broken. The early part, the entry level is fine. The middle levels are broken and then very mm -hmm. few make it to the top. So we all have to come together and somehow fix this broken pipeline so people can work their way up the pyramid. But Women in particular who choose to have families and engage in paid work. My suggestion, my plea is that can't be done alone. These are all full-time jobs. So you've got to have a partner, whoever that partner is, that participates equally in the family obligations. I know that I was lucky with Raj. We were equal partners in family creation and family rearing and family nurturing. It's very important that people have these conversations about families. And I honestly believe the one area where Asian values perhaps could be imported is multi-generational women. I'm mm. a product of multi-generational support. And with the aging population in the US, we've got to figure out how to have intergenerational responsibility where everybody can help young families be nurtured and brought up. And then finally, I'll say, think hard about where you want to go, uh, because as you move up that pyramid, it narrows really fast. And you have to juggle so many things. Think hard about whether you're in a state of readiness to juggle all your priorities to ascend to the top. There's only so much time we all have in the world. And think hard about the time. Think hard about what you do in the time that you have. And understand all the choices and the uh, trade-offs you're going to make as you ascend to the very top of a very steep pyramid. I was fortunate. I had the lottery of luck with a wonderful spouse, family that supported me, 
And uh, a company that I landed in, a great company like PepsiCo, that also had support systems. So everybody needs to think hard about all the trade-offs they're going to make and how they're going to navigate themselves to get to the top. And we, in turn, have to provide them the support structures and the mentoring help to pull them up. And that will allow many more CEOs who are diverse, who are women, and make for better companies in the future. Beautiful. Beautiful. That's amazing. Perfect. Thank you so much, Indranee. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Everything, Thank everything you, you've done. I could talk Thank to you, you all day. Thank you. Thank you all. <laughs> Leadership Next is edited by Nicole Vergala, written by me, Alan Murray, along with my amazing colleagues, Ellen McGirt and Megan Arnold. Our theme is by Jason Snell. Executive producers are Mason Cohn and Megan Arnold. Leadership Next is a production of Fortune Media. Leadership Next episodes are produced by Fortune's editorial team. The views and opinions expressed by podcast speakers and guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Deloitte or its personnel, nor does Deloitte advocate or endorse any individuals or entities featured on the episodes. 